The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And you're starting to see companies thinking about what a a future looks like where they don't necessarily have access to the China market anymore or have access, but in such a constrained way that it doesn't make good business sense anymore, whether it's through data localization laws or the continuation of forced joint ventures and technology transfers. At a certain point, it just, you know, it's not a price worth paying anymore. And so it... I think a lot of the um, the shift is largely due to self-inflicted actions by by Beijing, and not so much the the persuasive power of, of the U.S. government officials. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare podcast for October sixth, two thousand twenty-two. The United States is looking to curb China's advanced computing and chip production capabilities by using the so-called foreign direct product rule to prevent companies globally from selling certain advanced computing chips to Chinese buyers without a U.S. government license. To understand the background, the details, and the implications of this, I sat down with Martin Rasser, Senior Fellow and Director of the Technology and National Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Martin also served as a Senior Intelligence Officer and Analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency and a Senior Advisor in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. We talked about the nature of the semiconductor industry, what a foreign direct product rule is and what it can do, whether the Commerce Department is well positioned to do what's proposed, the tension of working with allies versus going it alone, and the precedent of U.S.-led actions against Huawei. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 6th, the U.S., China, and semiconductors. Martin, let's start out by setting the stage. Can you describe for us the overall state of the semiconductor industry, particularly as it relates to these different dynamics and interests from the United States, China, Taiwan, and so on? Absolutely, David. Uh, well, first of all, great to be back. It's been uh, it's been a little while, but uh, yeah, I've been looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, so the, uh, the semiconductor industry is front and center, right? It's been in the news, it seems, almost every day for uh, for several years now. And there's a reason for that. So if you think about the strategic competition that we're in, technology is very much at the center. If you think of technology as an enabler for political, economic, and military power, and what's foundational to that technology competition is semiconductors, chips. And what we're seeing now is 
a concerted effort by the U.S. government, but also the leadership in the European Union, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, India, Israel, Singapore. Everyone is focused on how they can bolster their own technology and semiconductor capabilities. And of course, the leadership in Beijing is doing very much the same. Help me understand one thing before you go on. Pardon my ignorance, but is the semiconductor market truly an unfettered global market other than episodic export controls that are put up for particularly advanced things? That is, can a a company in China that's looking for semiconductors go to all of these countries you mentioned and try to get supply? That's by and large how it works right now, right? It's a highly complex, highly globalized industry. Mm -hmm. But what has happened over the course of the past few decades is that particularly for the fabrication, so the actual making of semiconductors, a lot of that is now concentrated in a relatively small part of the world, uh, East Asia, and then Taiwan in particular. So Taiwan accounts for about half of global semiconductor output right now. And then there's one company called TSMC that's really the juggernaut. Like They are a hugely important player in the global semiconductor industry. And specifically for the most advanced semiconductors that are out there, that single company accounts for 92% of the world's capacity. So it's incredibly important as a a player. And virtually everyone is thus reliant on it, Chinese, U.S. alike. Absolutely. And that is why TSMC uh, went from a company that no one heard about uh, five years ago to somebody that's on everyone's lips right now. And what's more interesting... From a policy standpoint is how the, the Taiwanese leadership has really built up not just TSMC, but its industry in such a way that it was coined a silicon shield. You know, it's so indispensable to the global economy now that it is uh, essentially, uh, in their mind, insulated from uh, global conflict in the sense that if you take Taiwan out of the equation, the global economy would come close to collapsing. It would be that calamitous. Now, I understand that there are a lot of U.S. tools and intellectual property in terms of the practices of making semiconductors that some companies can't do without. Is that true in the case of TSMC? Do they use any U.S. inputs, whether on the intellectual side or the actual physical side? Yeah, absolutely. There's basically no semiconductor on the planet that doesn't somehow touch U.S. technology, U.S. know-how. And and so that is a huge uh, element of, of leverage potentially for the United States if it chose to do so. The United States is particularly strong in semiconductor design and the software that you need for that are used by companies around the world. And then there's various bits of uh, U.S. technology that are, are used throughout the value chain everywhere from design, of course, to the fabrication, the assembly, the packaging. So the United States, despite not being very prominent in fabrication anymore, is an extremely important player uh, throughout the entire semiconductor value chain. So let's talk about the news this week, the new rules that the Biden administration is preparing that presumably are aimed at 
curbing China's advanced computing and chip production capabilities. Um, talk about what we know about these things, which may be announced by the time this episode airs. What do we know about them and what are they intended to do to Chinese production? Well, what we know right now is that the Biden administration is considering a new rule, uh, specifically the foreign direct product rule. Now, and this is important because that touches on what we just mentioned is the fact that American technology touches pretty much everything in the entire semiconductor manufacturing process. What the foreign direct product rule does is it is a unilateral uh, way, uh, meaning that the United States on its own can dictate to any company or any other entity around the world that anything that contains uh, U.S. technology uh, could be a commodity software or um, an enabling technology you could forbid them from exporting that to certain entities. So extremely powerful, but it's also something that normally has been used very sparingly because of the huge impact that it has. Now, what we know is that uh, both the Washington Post and the New York Times were told by people knowledgeable of these plans that the administration is considering this. So this looks like a leak, not by government officials, but more likely people from industry, potentially some foreign government officials that were briefed on these plans uh, that wanted to get ahead of the story and lay this out there. What their motivations are, unclear. Um, so we don't know what the final rule exactly will be yet. So there's two options. So one would be list-based controls, meaning so here the control would be across the board and it would be the most effective way to thwart China's ability to gain access to certain chips or indigenize certain chip manufacturing capabilities. Uh, the other option would be end user controls. So that's where you target specific entities. Those are, of course, more difficult to enforce, right? So if you don't want a, a university affiliated with the People's Liberation Army from obtaining certain chips but you do allow sales of that same chip to another entity within China, it's very difficult to prevent the one organization transferring it to another and using it in a way that the U.S. government doesn't want to see happen. So we'll have to wait and see what it exactly is that the administration wants to do. The other thing that is subject to this potential rule is that specific semiconductor manufacturing equipment cannot be sold to China anymore. That's a big deal because Beijing has been hell-bent on indigenizing semiconductor fabrication for decades now, and they have fallen short. Most recently, we've seen more reports coming out of China that there's been misspending of funds, corruption, just a lack of progress towards technological milestones they set out for themselves. This has clearly been an area where they've been falling short of their goals. And if you deny Beijing access to this equipment, of which they are entirely dependent on foreign sources, so that right now there's no domestic alternative to this equipment, that would be a huge blow to Beijing's ambitions and aspirations in this field. But again, we have to wait and see 
what the extent of the uh, the proposed rule is that that is going to come forward. So if it is using this, I think you called it the foreign direct product rule. Mm-hmm. If it is using that mechanism, that is a very powerful hammer, right? Because it it would prevent companies globally from selling certain advanced computing chips to Chinese buyers without a U.S. license, if there's any U.S. technology involved, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why it's most likely this news is causing a lot of consternation in allied capitals. So think of The Hague, Tokyo, Seoul, uh, Taipei. Companies in these different countries are going to be directly impacted by this if they're not allowed to sell into the Chinese market. So we've already seen a preview of what this could look like with the Chinese company Huawei, a big telecommunications firm. The foreign direct product rule was used against the company back in 2020 during the Trump administration. And it had huge ripple effects, right? The second and third order consequences of this are tremendous. Now we're talking about, at a minimum, applying this apparently to numerous Chinese organizations and potentially across the board if they take a list-based control approach. The ripple effects there, you know, those are going to be waves and be much bigger than ripples. And then you have to start wondering, How is Beijing going to respond? Do they retaliate? And what are the long-term impacts on not just U.S. companies, but all these other companies in countries that we are allied with and we are friendly with? You're talking about the list-based approach. Is that this so-called entity list that the Department of Commerce maintains? Uh, That's a little different. So the entity list would identify specific companies universities, other organizations that you wouldn't be allowed to sell to. Um, And so that is typically done because of concern over what that entity does with it, either because they're directly linked to, uh, say, a Chinese military entity or an intelligence agency, or because that entity is using uh, U.S. technology in a way that we don't like, such as oppressing Uyghurs, mass surveillance, you know, eroding democracy in, in Hong Kong, etc. If you do a list-based control, you are controlling the commodity software or the specific tech just across the board, regardless of who uses it. You just say commodity X will not be sold to China, period, by anyone. Um, so, much more effective across the board if you want to achieve certain outcomes. But of course, because of that, that opens you up for a response from the party that's that's being targeted. Uh, because I think particularly when it comes to semiconductors, mm-hmm. we're talking very high stakes. And so then you have to start calculating how does your opponent respond. Mm. It also requires a pretty robust understanding of the companies and their inputs. And it seems to me there's an intelligence part of this. You and I have talked before about the reorganization at CIA that put an emphasis on a new mission center involved with technology. But a lot of this is happening at the Commerce Department, which is not currently a member of the intelligence community. And you've written separately that we really should be bolstering the Commerce Department because if it's going to be in the lead or at least heavily involved in issues like tariffs and export controls uh, and entity lists, that 
they really don't have the staffing, the resources, the structure, and the membership in the intelligence community to fully play that role in, in a way that so many other domains have it. Explain to me how the Commerce Department is placed now to be handling some of this work and whether you think they're, in a sense, up to the task of going through all of that due diligence to understand the lay of the land well enough of these companies and their interactions and the likely responses of the governments for actions such as these. Yeah, that's a huge challenge. You know, the Department of Commerce is is in a difficult spot right now, you know, as you mentioned, right? They just don't have the the people and the financial resources or in some cases even the authorities to be able to access all the information that they would need for this type of decision making. So what I suspect is happening now is that it's the intelligence community largely working with the National Security Council staff, if they are taking in particular an, an entity-based approach, having the IC tell the NSC staff, here, here are the specific organizations that you need to be focusing on in order to achieve the policy objectives that you're looking for. Now, commerce certainly is a part of those conversations, but yeah, I don't see how they would have the ability to to do their own assessments in a lot of cases on that to see if they fully concur with the IC assessment. I think the, the best near-term solution would be to have commerce be a formal part of the IC, or at least a portion of the Department of Commerce, um, so that they can better integrate in these assessments and the decision-making that goes along with it. Absent that, do, do you fear that any moves such as these proposed rules will inherently fail at some level just because the the information picture isn't strong enough on all of the, I mean, maybe on the direct effects, but on the secondary and tertiary effects, do you fear that we're, we're just not there yet? On the direct effects, I think we're on pretty solid footing. The recent experience with Russia, for example, demonstrates that uh, the intelligence community and the U.S. government as a whole is is quite good at determining where to focus its efforts. The second and third order consequences, yeah, that that's going to be difficult, right? Particularly given that no government has ever attempted something like this. You know, using the foreign direct product rule to this extent, there's going to be unintended, unforeseen consequences coming out of this. So there's no question in my mind about that. What I would be looking for is how well prepared are we to deal with those unintended outcomes when they do arrive. A further challenge here, of course, is that you know the administration appears to be ready to be taking unilateral action, right? So discussions with allies and partners on teaming up on this effort didn't come to fruition. And so Washington has decided to go it alone. How do our allies and partners react to this? That does, of course, provide an incentive for foreign companies to design out U.S. content. Right. And what does that then mean for the competitiveness of U.S. firms in the long run? And, and so we've seen this happen in the past in the, uh, the space sector, for example, where U.S. Uh, export restrictions prompted 
European firms in particular to really focus on indigenous technological capabilities and, and were quite successful in gaining a lot of market share as a result. And that that is something that is certainly um, something we have to take into consideration as we uh, see what the details of the, the proposed rule are. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. What is the alternative to that? Because if if the United States at the the highest level of policymaking has determined that we can't continue on the same road we're on. Something has to change with the provision of the semiconductor technology to Chinese military and other sensitive areas. But we don't have the alliance of technology democracies that you have that you have called for in the past. We we don't have a united front from all of the countries that are at that overlap of democratic, you know, liberal world order institution respecting countries and countries that have a, an advanced stake in semiconductors and related technologies. So if the U.S. were not to do this because of all of the consequences and the backlash from some erstwhile allies, is there any alternative? Is there any opportunity for cooperation among all of these technologically advanced democracies to act together against China? The alternative would be uh, continuing to engage with allies and partners uh, to try and get everyone on the same page on the risk assessment. And that takes a lot of time. I think the fact that you see that Washington potentially moving forward on its own on this uh, really underscores how acute the administration sees the risk as being and that they're willing to move ahead with all the potential downsides that go along with it um, in order to take this action when when they still have time to do so. There is the potential that they, that the administration has information, um, most likely from the intelligence community, that would suggest that their, their window to act was starting to close and that they decided that it's better to go it alone than try and wait to get allies and partners on board with this. I think another potential um, calculus here would be that if America does move first, that the allies would, would follow suit eventually as well. I mean, this did happen with, with Huawei also. It took a little bit of time, but even with you know some of the uh, uh, turbulent times that the, the Trump administration caused, other allies, particularly our European allies, ended up being on the same page eventually. So that, that could be part of the calculus now as well. It seems like the Huawei story, the whole Huawei experience is the dominant one for policymakers, as you said, realizing that, yes, we can do this. 
and allies will grudgingly, but allies will grudgingly join us at least in some significant numbers. Do you think that's the framing of this in the policymaking community now that basically people are looking back and saying, well, it kind of worked with Huawei, so we can use it in this case too? Or are there any other competing models, any other examples they can look to other than hoping that allies will follow suit? I think ultimately, you know, what what the calculus in the White House is, is looking what what's at stake, right? Where the strategic competition is of such a magnitude that not acting is not an option. And, you know, don't forget, I mean, the... Um, the current team has been in place for almost two years. They have done a lot in terms of engaging with the like-minded countries on technology policy matters. And there's been a lot of progress, right? And we've got the, the Trade and Technology Council with the EU. We have uh, the Australia-UK-US agreement, which has a huge tech component outside of the nuclear submarine deal. We have uh, the Quad with India, Japan, and Australia has a huge emerging tech component, not to mention all the bilateral engagements that we have with countries like India and Japan, South Korea, Israel. So given all that that's been going on and the I think, considerable good faith that the administration put into getting other countries to come on board with this, you know, at a certain point, you just say, listen, we've, we gave it our best, we have to move forward. So yeah, I, I don't see at this point that there's much of an alternative option, uh, other than to just blaze a path and, you know, eventually have, have the allies uh, follow suit. Given the density of the institutional framework of the quad, that it's not just foreign ministers and the secretary of state meeting, but you're having meetings at multiple levels of the bureaucracy. Do you get the sense that this was somehow previewed or discussed at certain quad meetings? Because Japan and India at least seem highly involved in this, perhaps Australia too. I don't know their technology in this area, but do you think this is something that American officials might have in a sense run by these near allies before pushing this rule? Oh yeah, there's there's no question that uh, that the administration has been in active discussions about these very issues for for a long time. The Quad is probably one of those venues, but also some other uh, ad hoc groupings, right? So, in particular, when it comes to semiconductors, uh, Japan, the Netherlands have been critically important partners on this. So there, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, Tokyo and The Hague, at a minimum, uh, were not just aware, but were actively engaged in discussions to see if there could be some type of agreement that could be shaped. And evidently, there was a difference of opinion, I think largely differing uh, risk assessments as to what's at stake if you sell certain types of equipment and chipsets to China, and that at least as of right now, that those differences were such that uh, they did not seem reconcilable in the near term. Yeah, so Washington moved forward. And I think now as as this next step is figuring out, well, what type of information sharing and analytic exchanges can Washington have with other partners to, to try and close that gap? Mm-hmm. Similar to what um, 
to what the U.S. government did with with Huawei. Actually, I should say it was really uh, Australia and the Czech Republic that were largely leading that effort in order to really identify and articulate what the risks were. But once America caught up with the Australians and the Czechs, a lot of the efforts under the Trump administration were to engage with particularly the European allies on showing them what was at risk, right? When you have 5G as critical infrastructure and the fact that you really cannot mitigate the threat of an untrusted vendor on these highly interconnected networks, that's the, you know, that's the dialogue that ultimately got countries um, such as the United Kingdom to formally ban Huawei from their networks. I think we'll start seeing a similar dynamic in this regard where you know, U.S. experts are really going to have to make the case for here's why we took this action. Here's here's what we believe will happen if we continue to sell this type of equipment to China. That's going to take some time. But, you know, again, I think ultimately just the practicality and the, the pragmatism that's involved with that, I think, yes, the, the other allies will eventually come around uh, to being closer to the U.S. perspective on this. Are there any major differences there in the probable receptivity of the industry and and governments in these various allies? You've taken advantage of the post-pandemic world to travel around a lot and talk to analysts and others involved in the technology industries and a lot of our allies. What have you been hearing? Are you sensing any differences that some areas are more receptive than others to following the American lead on a topic like this? Yeah, so I was recently in uh, Japan, South Korea, and Singapore. I think overall, you know, the, the Japanese are quite aligned with the United States on on their uh, perception of China now. South Korea is as well, you know, generally speaking. Uh, but you know, there is some more friction in that relationship. The Inflation Reduction Act, for example, uh, has caused consternation in Seoul uh, with uh, some provisions that were not well received. Uh, particularly on um, on the the EV tax credits, Singapore is an interesting case. Is that in that you know they're they're kind of wedged in between the two, and ideally they would just love to see us all get along and and be able to continue on. But you know it's important to remember that a lot of the perceptions of China have shifted sharply negative over the past few years. And it's not so much what, uh, say, Canberra or Washington have been saying about Beijing, but it's really the actions of the Chinese Communist Party, right? How they've managed the COVID crisis at first, you know, blaming outsiders uh, for this. Uh, the zero COVID policies have had um, a pretty uh, calamitous effect on foreign business sentiment for what it takes to do business in China, of course, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, um, and then the uh, the tech crackdown. Um, and so if you see the capriciousness of Xi Jinping and the leadership in Beijing when it comes to their own tech sector, take all that together, and that has really soured people's perspective on, on China. And I think that makes people more realistic about considering what what the prospects of being able to continue to have access to the Chinese market, what that means. Maybe you're starting to see companies 
on their own volition shift supply chains. And you're starting to see companies thinking about what a a future looks like where they don't necessarily have access to the China market anymore or have access, but in such a constrained way that it doesn't make good business sense anymore, whether it's through data localization laws or the continuation of forced joint ventures and technology transfers. At a certain point, it just, you know, it's not a price worth paying anymore. And so it, I think a lot of the um, the shift is largely due to self-inflicted actions by by Beijing and not so much the, the persuasive power of, of uh, U.S. government officials. Is there one thing more than the, the others that is the primary U.S. concern with this advanced technology? I mean, we've been hearing a lot lately about things like hypersonics or and AI. I mean, is one of those more of concern at this moment to push this rule because of known or suspected Chinese developments that will rapidly move them if they have the right technology at the right time? Yeah, that's why you're seeing semiconductors be so much front and center, right? Because they're they're foundational to pretty much everything that we consider uh, emerging tech and really the technologies that people believe will be the bedrock of of the economy in the in the decades ahead artificial intelligence of course you need semiconductors in order to have the computing power that you need to train your algorithms and do the machine learning methods biotechnology will depend on chips as will quantum computing and pretty much the day-to-day functioning of society so if we can't get semiconductor policy right you know, you can forget about all the rest because it's all it's all interrelated. And that's, I think, one of the biggest realizations for policymakers now is where, you know, the tendency has always been to treat all these technology areas as, as independent silos and trying to right. Uh, right. pass bills that, you know, well, here's our AI bill, here's our biotech bill. And, and the reality of it is, uh, technology is highly diffused. The United States doesn't have anywhere near the technological dominance that it used to have in the 1960s, for example. Um, there's capabilities all over the world. And now you have uh, an ascendant China that is highly capable in pretty much all the key technology areas of the of the current century. So, yeah, that means you need different types of approaches, and that means leveraging the protect agenda, economic statecraft in a way that's never been done before. It means promoting your competitiveness in all these areas with R&D investments, industrial policies, workforce development, and it means figuring out how you better partner with your allies, uh, because that's a huge strategic advantage that the U.S. has that China comes nowhere close to matching. And so how do you leverage the strengths and capabilities of of your friends and allies in a way that benefits all these countries? Uh, and that's, that's the biggest challenge. And to do that with in a competition with a country that is heavily entangled economically with all these other countries... It's a, um, a a geostrategic challenge, unlike anything we've we've faced as, as a species, which is you know an absolutely fascinating time to be alive, but also one where, <laughs> boy, you know, like 
the consequences of not getting it right are are tremendous. Yeah. Well, there is another case and let me put this out there and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the foreign direct product rule came up back in late February or, or March regarding Russia when there was a move taken about uh, after the invasion of Ukraine that Russia was in fact hit with this so that any of their AI research would be affected and cut off from critical chip supplies. So first of all, correct my premise if I'm wrong, that it was the foreign foreign direct product rule that was used in that case. And, and secondly, what did we learn from that case, albeit very different situation than China in many ways, but it's been a while now since that was done. What do we know about the impact on the ability of Russian technology to carry forward? Well, in the Russia case, those actions have been extremely effective, right? And we've seen that across the board. It's been, uh, it hit their high-tech industry very hard. It hit their defense industry very hard. What was particularly notable was how how quick the action was and how many countries signed on for that. Now, part of the reason for that is obviously Moscow's actions were egregious and shocking, but there's also the the reality that Russia is very much not integrated into the global economy. So from an economic hit, you know, it's minimal, right? Foreign firms didn't lose much, relatively speaking, in terms of market access and, and revenue. The challenge with China is that, yes, it's an economic powerhouse and many countries have very extensive economic ties and uh, entanglements with China. And that will, that means that any type of similar action against China, say in response to a a Taiwan crisis would look very, very different. And something that Beijing is probably banking on and frankly, you know, would mean that maybe they're calculating that, yes, they could, they could weather any response by the democratic allies in, in the Taiwan crisis scenario. So anything that we could do in response to that would would look very different and probably wouldn't be nearly as effective as what we've been seeing in Russia right now. Martin, thank you for helping us all understand this so much better. We appreciate it. Absolutely, David. Anytime. This was great. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Remember, to get access to ad-free versions of this and some other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com slash lawfare. This podcast is edited by Jen Pache Howell. Your audio engineer this episode was me. Our music is performed, as always, by Sophia Yan. Thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. 
So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.